Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. God indeed is our vision. He gives us great guidance throughout our lives together. And one of the things he guides us to is to confess our sins before him. He is a holy God. We are an unholy people. And so as we're walking through the Ten Commandments in the Catechism, we come to the Eighth Commandment in our call to confession. Thou shalt not steal, in Exodus 20, verse 15. And from Ephesians 4, verse 28, hear God's word as well. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. As far as the reading of God's word, this eighth commandment against stealing, it can be applied in many ways besides robbery. Don't steal time from your employer. Don't steal time from God by using his day for yourself or by neglecting devotional time with him. Work hard so you have something to give to others. As they used to say, we have two hands and one mouth, so as we grow up, we begin to produce more than we consume. Pursue a vocation with diligence. All these are ways to apply the Eighth Commandment. So let's confess our sins before God and our minds. the darkness within us and around us, that you would uh, have us see Christ more clearly so that we can uh, work and be conformed to his image more closely. We thank you for your sanctifying work in us, those you have redeemed and justified through the blood of Jesus at the cross. Lord, keep us, uh, keep him firmly in our minds, fixed, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The story is told of a uh, famous acrobat who crossed Niagara Falls. You know, these guys who put a line across the, the water and go across on a tightrope. He goes across the falls one direction. A crowd has gathered. And he gets to the other side and he says, You believe I can do that? And they're all kind of cheering. Yeah, yeah. He says, Great, hop on. I'll take one of you back with me. Uh, no way, no way, I don't think so. Nobody wants to do that. There's a distinction there, you see. And if you look at our, the first verse in our text, you see in, or in verse 30, the last verse of the last text, many believed in Jesus, right? They, they see him doing these miracles. They, they hear his teaching and they're nodding their heads. It's like watching the guy go across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. And then Jesus says in the beginning verses of our text, If you abide in my word, if you're truly my disciples, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they balk. Like, what do you mean? We're, we are free. And it's, it's that Niagara Falls moment where they uh, saw him go across, but they're not going to jump on and put their own lives in danger. We'll come back to that distinction later. But only Jesus sets us free from sin. 
is the point of our text here. He's the eternal I am. He's much greater than Abraham. So uh, just a two-point outline today. Sin, bondage, and freedom. That's the first half of the, the text up to verse 47. And then who Jesus is, the I am, in the rest. So the first thing we need to know is that we need to know our bondage. And we need to know what true freedom is. That's the first thing Jesus gets at here. It's the first thing he says when people come to him uh, nodding their heads saying, hey, you've really got something that I, that I want. The first thing he says is, you need to be set free. If you know the truth, you'll be set free. They claimed to be Abraham's people, but they didn't have Abraham's faith. And there's a difference here between claiming to follow Christ and actually following him. That's the Niagara Falls moment there. There's a difference between believing some things Jesus said and truly trusting him to save you from God's wrath for the guilt of your sin. That's when you get on the back and ride piggyback with the acrobat back across the tightrope. Are you willing to throw your whole life on uh, this man who claims to be the I am uh, to save you and free you? Now, we have to be careful there. We're, it's not that we're saved by the quality of our faith. Right? God uses even a tiny bit of faith, however imperfect, and he saves you. Uh, we aren't, needing, aren't talking about needing to get an A on the faith test to get into heaven. Your repentance doesn't have to be perfect or complete for God to save you. It never is. And that's important to remember. When we do, then we're ready to hear these verses. Because here, Jesus calls us to a deeper faith. Right? Abide in the word. We aren't saved by how much or how well we abide in the word, but we ought to strive to abide in the word. If we claim to trust Christ, but we never have an interest in following him, in being like him, then we need to question if our faith is genuine or just a hollow, empty thing. The Jews claim in verse 33 to be Abraham's people, but Jesus later calls them children of the devil. It's quite striking. They protest they've never been in bondage. Jesus points out their slavery to sin. I'm going to linger here in verse 33 a bit because we need to see ourselves in this picture before we get anywhere in the truth with God. So in our sinful state, we cannot see the truth and we, we lose the, all sense of reality, lose touch with reality, we might say. That's what the Jews are doing here. It's really laughable if you think about the history of Israel that they say they've never been in bondage. Think about that. Uh, first of all, there's our text in Exodus 3, right? What was the whole point of God coming down to Moses in the burning bush? What does he say he's going to do? Set them free from the oppression of Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. And their history is littered with conquerors. The Ammonites, the Philistines, Babylon, Greece, Rome. Uh, so in our pride, our perception gets completely out of touch with reality. That's what happened to the Jews here. And that's just on the political level or the military level. Right? We're all like this. Our, our sinful condition deceives us, distorts our view. We can't see ourselves accurately. And so the self-centered husband thinks that he's doing a great job loving his wife, when really she is just withering. That, that can happen. The self-centered friend thinks that they had a great time together, but she just talked about herself the whole time. Sin is a denial of how things really are. We need the word of God to see ourselves clearly. The husband needs his wife to tell him honestly how he's doing, loving her. We need feedback from each other. 
So we tend to deny our bondage or not see it. You know, it would have been easy, I think, in that moment for Jesus to be sucked into a political discussion, right? All he would have to do, and I know I'd be tempted to do this, when, when they say, we've never been in bondage to anybody, all you have to do is point to the Roman soldiers around. It's like, you're occupied right now. What are you talking about? It can be very easy to go into that kind of discussion. Jesus makes the more important point, verse 34, that sin puts you in bondage. So political freedom is a great blessing. I'd urge you to fight for it and to vote for it. But civic freedom is not the most important blessing. There are many Christians around the world who know real, true freedom in Christ, but they live under the thumb of oppressive states. Many Americans do not know real freedom. They may cherish freedom of speech, the freedom to keep and bear arms, uh, all the rest, but they don't know the freedom of guilt from their sins, from guilt of their sins. So Jesus is making this point strongly. That's why I'm, I'm hanging out here a moment. Uh, he says uh, there in verse 34, truly, truly, or assuredly, some uh, versions say. The Hebrew is amen, amen. Uh, can't say this strongly enough. Sin is a hard taskmaster. It leads to misery and disappointment and despair. It will enslave you. It will control you. It will destroy you. And Jesus talks about us in bondage further in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. If you stay in that state, you're going to get kicked out of the house. Uh, or as the slaves were, you, you, you would be sold uh, to someone else. The son stays in the house. The slave might not. And you're slaves in your sin. Jesus is giving an, an urgent warning here. So sin is more than bad choices that get you in a hole. Uh, people today tend to talk this way, uh, talk radio hosts or uh, uh, health and wealth folks, uh, teachers. Uh, no, sin is more than just bad choices that get you in a hole, and now I've got to work extra hard to get out of that. Sin is a condition before it is choices. That's important to remember. David says this in Psalm 51, that he was born in sin, conceived in it. And that doesn't mean that the act of conceiving was the sin. No, he was born as a slave to sin, born with a spiritual deformity. Uh, just before uh, we left Virginia, I had an opportunity to hear Vody Baucom speak at a pre uh, crisis pregnancy center dinner. Uh, he's written a few books, excellent gospel message he gave uh, on how the incarnation means we need to respect life in the womb. It was a wonderful message. He just gave an ex excellent exposition of the gospel. He said part, in part this, the gospel message is more about sin than about sins. The point is, I do not approach a person on the basis of a specific sin that he needs to quit, but on the basis of a nature that needs to be changed. And that's really true, and that can help us in how we relate to unbelievers around us. The, the presenting problem isn't always the real problem we, we've talked about before. It, it isn't just that bad habit of smoking that you have that you've got to quit. It isn't the particular sin that's presenting that, that shows you that this person isn't a believer. There's a nature underneath there. There's their sinfulness that's resulting in whatever the sin may be. So this is the bondage that we're in. Jesus says in verse 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. 
So from bondage, we turn to freedom. Only the Son can free you at the cross. Uh, now, the slave analogy is a good one because a slave can be freed, right? If they're not, like we said, they might be sold away from the house. And now, keep thinking about this house metaphor, right? Jesus keeps that in our minds. The slave does not remain in the house, right? One of the reasons that Psalm 23 is so precious to us, I've read through Psalm 23 a bit this past week with our uh, tragic death in our family. One of the reasons it's so precious to us is the last verse. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's going to keep me in his house forever. And Jesus is giving a warning to these Jews here who were professing faith in the God of Abraham. You might be kicked out of the house. You better watch it. The son is here. Trust the son. And as we abide in Christ, that we are kept in the house forever. There's a real assurance to that, even as we have that warning before us to uh, continue abiding in Christ. Really free, truly free. And freedom, what does true freedom look like? That's part of what we need to consider. The, the, the world today thinks that freedom means I get to do whatever I want. Freedom means I can do this or that or the other thing. It's up to me. That's freedom to the world. But no, to be truly free is to be in God's house. Set free by the sun. Uh, back uh, 60, 70 years ago or so, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, our, our president, uh, talked about freedom. Uh, and the question was free from what? He talked about four freedoms that we desire. We want to be free from want, free from fear, free to worship, free freedom of speech. And those are freedoms on the human level regarding government. And, and FDR's followers today would continue to assume that human government should be able to give us freedom from want and from fear. That's a discussion for another day. But when Jesus says, free indeed, he's pointing to something much deeper even than that. Free from shame. Free from guilt. Free from the burden of having to perform well enough to please God. Free from these things. Only Jesus can give that freedom. Because only he went to the cross as the sinless, effective sacrifice accepted by God for you and me. Really free. If we turn to Romans chapter 6, uh, I was going to have us read from there, and I didn't. So maybe we ought to turn there a moment. Romans 6, 15, that deals with this well as well. Uh, Paul talks about being slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin. Uh, verse 16 of Romans 6. Don't you know that if you present yourselves as anyone to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And you can go from one to the other, Paul says in verse 17. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. You've been set free from sin, verse 18. You've become slaves of righteousness. Uh, down to verse 20 there. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't care if you were righteous or not. You didn't, didn't worry about that. But what fruit were you getting from that? The end of those things is death. Verse 22. Now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what Paul's doing there and how this relates. You're going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to God. And being a servant of God, that's true freedom. 
It's very different than the world thinks. The world thinks, well, I don't want to pick either side. I'm not a Satan worshiper or anything, but I want to be free from God, too. I want to be really free myself. No, that's bondage to death, uh, to, to be bound only by your own desires, to have to follow your desires slavishly. We see the world doing that today. It's uh, result in uh, lots of destruction, perversion. Well, uh, you, you see here, true freedom is found in serving God. It's, it's the Hebrews' three kind of servant, right? When the writer of Hebrews talks about Moses, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, right? Jesus is the son in the house, so he's much greater, of course. But we can be faithful servants in God's house. That's true freedom. In God's house, on to verse 37 now, Jesus uh, really ramps up the, he escalates the tension and the hostility in this chapter. Uh, and it's partly in result of, uh, in reaction to the people who are saying, well, we're not in bondage. Who are you? We're sons of Abraham. So it's partly in response to their protest. But Jesus also is initiating his own escalation here. And here is one of those, beginning in verse 37 to 47. You are seeking to kill me. <laughs> Jesus just comes out and says. Right? In God's house, there, there's the son who owns it all. There are faithful servants like Moses was, like we can be. And then also in the house, there are snakes who are trying to pervert, uh, subvert God's house, God's agenda. Sons of the devil. A brood of vipers, remember John the Baptist called them. That's a fitting metaphor. Sons of the devil, brood of vipers. The devil's the serpent in the garden. So you have snakes in the garden. You have snakes. And here's Jesus again teaching in God's house, in the temple. Uh, and uh, these uh, rulers who are seeking to kill him in his own father's house. And he calls them what they are, your sons of the devil. That comes at verse 44. So sonship here, becoming a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, it's, it's more about relationship and obedience than it is about biology. Right? That's important for the Jews to remember. They, they claim to be children of Abraham, and biologically they're right. They are. They are in the line of Abraham. They probably have their genealogies all traced back. Their ducks are in a row. They know who they are. If you're Abraham's children, God says, Jesus says, you would trust God and you'd obey him. You wouldn't be trying to kill God's prophet. You'd bless him. So Jesus points us to the faith of Abraham and the deeds of Abraham. Abraham didn't do these things. He didn't try to kill the one who came representing God. What are you doing? You can be a Jew by birth but not have the faith of Abraham. It's important to remember. But we have to turn to the Lord in repentance and loyalty ourselves and not rest on our heritage. Uh, they respond in verse 41, slanderous accusation. Uh, you're, Jesus again says, you're not sons of Abraham. You're not doing what he did. And they say, you're doing what your father did. Jesus is coming up to the, the point of your father is the devil. But even before he gets to that, they come out with a slanderous accusation, verse 41. We weren't born in sexual immorality. We have one father, God. And here, I've mentioned this last week, I think, you have some innuendo here to cast doubt on the credibility of Jesus. That, you know, when you can't prove something against your enemy, accusations that imply indirectly are the next best thing. That's what this is right here. It's a character attack on Jesus. He confronts this wickedness in verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? 
right? So you can, you can imply that I was born out of wedlock all you want, fine. But have you seen me sin? And they have no answer to that. Combine this with the self-justifying and defensive statement that they are of God. We have one father, God. The hostility is really ramping up here. You were of your father, the devil, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus, almost what we would say today, and I I say this reverently, we would say that Jesus kind of goes off here uh, about Satan. Because there's, there's a, how do I say this well? There is a sinless, pure um, hostility that God has towards Satan. He's the adversary, the enemy. He has nothing to do with the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. I tend to think Jesus didn't say that perfectly calmly with no emotion whatsoever. <laughs> there's, there's some uh, enmity. I will put enmity between you and the woman that God says. Uh, to Adam and Eve about Satan. Excuse me, he says that to Satan uh, about Adam and Eve. There's hostility there. there. He was a murderer from the beginning. You're trying to kill me. J- Satan was a murderer at the beginning, trying to kill me. Now, that's some of that is shrouded in mystery. It's interesting to think about. Scripture does tell us there was war in heaven, right? And, and that Satan was trying to supplant God on his throne. I will be like the Most High, he says. So in some sense, Satan was out to kill God. And when he couldn't kill God, he's out to kill God's people, the image of God on earth. He's a murderer from the beginning. Uh, It's been well said, by the way, that the cross is what the world thinks of God. Right? If you look at the cross and see Jesus hanging on the cross, that's what Satan wanted in one sense. He wanted God dead. And the world, too, those who uh, rebel against God, that's what we want. We want him up there dead to stay. God uh, uses that ungodly desire in an amazing way to work salvation for the world. Well, all who reject Jesus are following the way of Satan, rejecting God's plan, shoving him aside, setting ourselves up as our own God. But by contrast, if if you're of God, then you love Jesus. You understand him. You'll do what Abraham did. So it's possible for professing believers to find themselves in this position, acting as sons of the devil. We see that all throughout Scripture. It's quite amazing. Uh, The first obvious example is Cain killing Abel. But David, think of King David, sinning with Bathsheba and Uriah, working against justice and right. Peter stands against Jesus going to the cross. He says, don't do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. There are times in which uh, we uh, can find ourselves in that position. What do we do with this? Again, it's back to the first point. We need to recognize our bondage. Notice when we're self-deceived. Keep going back to the word, uh, uh, listening and taking feedback from others. Uh, Go to the Lord Jesus. Because we can't fix this bondage problem ourselves. Your parents can't fix it. Church leaders can't fix it. Christian education can't fix it. These things can help, but only Jesus can set you free. Only at the cross can the burden of sin be cut off your back and roll away. Remember that Pilgrim's Progress illustration. 
that burden of sin needs to be cut off and rolled away. If you've done that already, remember, this is a lifelong pursuit for the Christian. It's not a one-time conversion thing. Our old nature remains with us, so Paul has to tell us as believers in Romans 6 to not let sin reign in you. Don't obey its lusts. The Christian, with the Spirit of God living in him, is not in bondage in the same way as an unbeliever is. We have help. We don't just sit back and figure, well, I won't be perfect until glory, so nothing I can do now. No. Is there any pattern of sin that you're hooked on that you can't stop? Remember that sin deceives. So ask those closest to you to answer that question for you. We, we sing of it wonderfully. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That's the freedom we have in Christ. Uh, the second point this morning, and it's shorter, don't worry, is that Jesus is greater than Abraham, beginning in verse 48. As so often in the Gospel of John, the focus becomes who Jesus is. Right? They're saying he's crazy. They have nothing but insult and wild ad hominem accusations at this point. Verse 48. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? Those, by the way, are kind of the two worst things that you could say about somebody in the culture of the day. The Samaritans were the most despised, and to have a demon is it's just the worst thing to say. But it's, that's all they have is just, well, they'll throw the automatic worst insults they can think of. There's no real argument they have against Jesus. Jesus responds that he's honoring the Father, verse 51. If we're in Christ, we will not see death, he says. He doesn't mean physically. He's talking about spiritual death, punishment for sin, being cut off from God. That's all over if you are in Christ. But who, think about this, Who can claim to exempt you from death, physical or spiritual? Father Abraham died, everybody dies. They get the, the logic at this point. Nobody can promise otherwise. Who does this guy think he is? And Jesus says again, verse 54 to 56, that he's from God. I know God. I'm not bragging. I'd be lying if I didn't say it. (laughs) A very interesting way Jesus puts that. Abraham looked forward to Jesus, he says, verse 56. And this is where he starts to turn things around and where he really escalates the claim once again. So far, the debate has been about claiming the high ground, right? And the high ground is being true children of Abraham. Who's a true son of Abraham? A true, who's doing what Abraham did? Abraham's the trump card, right? Now Jesus ups the ante. Yeah, you know your great father Abraham you brag about and you're proud about, who you try to live up to. He was so looking forward to my arrival here. The one we're all trying to be like was actually looking up to someone else, looking forward to someone else. It was a source of great joy for Abraham to know that I was coming. We have the same thing in Matthew 13. Many prophets and wise men have looked forward to this day have longed to see this day with their eyes. They didn't see it, but you have. Jesus does the same thing when he asks about the Messiah being the son of David. Uh, David calls the Messiah his Lord, Jesus says. So David's, you know, he's the main man. David's the one to live up to. And the Messiah, uh, he's going to manage to be as good as David. That's kind of how they're thinking of it. Or is it the other way around? David was looking forward to one greater than him to come. 
uh, try a, a modern example. It, it would be like a political debate today, right, where the Republican and the Democrat are, are both appealing to George Washington. They're saying, if Washington were here today, he'd agree with me. And the Democrat says, no, 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 if Washington were here today, he'd agree with me. And somebody in the back stands up and says, you know, I remember young George. He was so looking forward to me showing up and setting this country straight. You see the turnaround. That's what Jesus is doing. That's going to raise some questions, all right. Who do you think you are? What are you talking about? And Jesus ramps it up again. Not only is he claiming firsthand relationship with Abraham, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And we need the Old Testament background to understand what he's saying there. That's why we read from Exodus 3. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, Moses asks what his name is. What should I tell Israel that your name is? I want to make sure I get this straight, that I represent you well if I'm going to do this. And God's response, I am who I am. Jesus claims the same title, the same identity as Yahweh. God the Father. Wow, so they pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. What does this mean for us, briefly, as we close? When you run to Jesus with your sin and your bondage problem, Jesus is big enough to handle it. Jesus is big enough to handle it. Our sins and our troubles tend to overwhelm us. Do you ever get discouraged by the pervasiveness of sin or trouble in your life or your family or in your church? I know I can do that. And that discouragement itself can wreak havoc on a family. It comes out in crazy ways. But we need to run to Jesus for freedom from our sin. He is big enough to handle it. He's big enough to handle it. If you think again about that Pilgrim's Progress illustration, where you've got to cut the burden from your back and it rolls away to the cross, or you're going to the cross. Think of that illustration. You can't just drop your bundle of guilt yourself because you're still standing in the muck. Where are you going to go with it? Who is going to take it? Only Jesus can do that without it boomeranging back to you. So run to Jesus. He is the great I Am. He will set you free. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, Romans 8 tells us. His plan, his grace are greater than all the sin and trouble in the world. So let's serve him in the freedom he brings us in our dear Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for the great I Am, uh, your Son, Jesus, claiming that uh, title, that uh, being with you. Thank you for giving us your Son, fully God, fully human. Help us, Lord, to know Christ and, and the power of his resurrection. That let us come to you and give you our burdens, our troubles, our sin, and our guilt. For you can take them and you can deal with them. Let us serve you faithfully as sons and daughters in your house. Lord, help us to work against wickedness and unrighteousness wherever we find it in ourselves, uh, in your house, uh, in the world. Show us, Lord, how we can be faithful sons and daughters of yours. We pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as he taught us to pray.
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.